If you'll take your Bibles and put a finger in Genesis 42, Genesis 42, and then turn to Romans chapter 8. While you're turning, let me uh, thank the session for affording me this opportunity to bring the word of the Lord. I was with you on Zoom. That was my first experience ever of preaching on Zoom. Uh, not one I uh, look forward to, but I got through it. Preaching to a camera is uh, not easy, but glad to be able to help. And better to be here in person. And I'm glad you all made it through the loss of an hour sleep last night. I want you to pity me because I was up at 3.45 on Saturday morning to make it here. Your time, 5.30, 8.30, my time, and I lost an hour on top of that. But I'm here awake and uh, refreshed and ready to bring the Lord's Word to you. Glad to see you. And I would encourage you to come, if, if you can, make it out to the Bible class. I'm dealing with a, a text from 2 Samuel 23. Uh, David says, after describing a, a land, a nation where they've got good rulers and governors and kings and how a blessing it is, he says, my house is not so with God. David's home had a lot of problems, children especially. And uh, he was able to say, in spite of that, this morning we looked at the all those that come in life. We all have them. Uh, we can be saved on our way to heaven. God's blessed us, although this is also true. Uh, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with those crooks in the lot of life? And we'll begin to go into detail how that works out in the covenant, this everlasting covenant. It's good theology. It's good gospel theology. And I encourage you to come next Lord's Day morning at 9.30. What better place could you be on a Sabbath day than in the house of the Lord? And then come along on Wednesday evening as we get to the really life of this church. It's the heartbeat of it all. It's the prayer meeting. And the more you have praying, seeking God's face, the better it's going to be. So come with us this coming Wednesday at 7.30. So we'll pick up at verse 26, Romans chapter 8, verse 26 reading through to the end of the chapter, and then turning and looking back on Genesis 42 at one verse. So Romans chapter 8, verse 26, let's hear God's holy word. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, 
how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now back to that verse in Genesis chapter 42, verse 36. His boys have come back from Egypt telling them they had to leave Simeon behind, they, they want to take Benjamin with him. It's not good news to Jacob's ears. Jacob their father said, verse 36, unto them, me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. Amen. God bless the reading of his word for his namesake. Would you bow your head for a moment with me for a word of prayer? God asking to come to us. Let's all pray. Heavenly Father, we confess our need of the Spirit's enabling both to preach the word and to listen to it with the heart and to obey it. Grant our God the, all the grace that is needed to make this a time when thy people are well instructed by thee and that their own minds are transformed by the truth and that we get much help for this pilgrim journey that we're on headed for a glory land. Strengthen us all, we pray, with might in the inner man. Meet with us, deal with us in grace, for Christ's sake. Amen and amen. As you read those last words of Jacob, at the end of that chapter, all you can think of, poor Jacob. Poor, poor Jacob. He's an old man now. It seems that the last years of his life are going to be spent in mourning. His children had been an ongoing source of heartache for the old patriarch. We were considering that for a while this morning in the Bible class, how our children, uh, from whom we expected much comfort and joy, turn out to be the greatest sources 
of our griefs and pain. It was so for Jacob. And it was seen that these family troubles had turned Jacob into something of a pessimist. That word pessimist comes from the Latin word pessimus, which means worst. A pessimist is usually defined, or pessimism, as this tendency to expect the worst possible outcome in any given set of circumstances. The worst. Murphy's Law, I'm sure they have that law up in Canada as well as in the States. If anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. Have you heard of O'Reilly's Law? Murphy was an optimist. Mm. O'Reilly was really a pessimist. A pessimist engages in the practice of looking on the dark side of things because he doesn't expect to see the bright side of things. I say that Jacob was plagued with pessimism in Genesis 42 because of the response he makes to his sons when they tell him that they can't go back to Egypt to get more grain unless they have Benjamin with him. His baby boy. Jacob cries out, all these things are against me. Hebrew translated all these things as simply one word that means all. It could easily be translated, everything is against me. When you are in that frame of heart and mind, you do expect the worst to happen. Jacob has given up hope of ever seeing Joseph and Simeon alive. Joseph is not and Simeon is not. And what did he think would happen if he agreed to allow them to take Benjamin back into Egypt to get more grain? You see verse 38. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in which ye go, then ye shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. My Jacob, how pessimistic you are. You're expecting the worst to happen. Are you like that? At times. You don't expect the best. Let's be honest. You expect the worst. Jacob was looking at his circumstances and fearing the worst would happen. But that, that, that... That charge we might bring against Jacob of being a pessimist can fly right back in our faces. Have we often not painted our circumstances with the exact same black paint in which he painted his circumstances? And this is especially our tendency when we find ourselves in the midst of afflictions and sorrows as Jacob. Our hopes are dashed to pieces. Our expectations are not fulfilled. And our hearts are filled with anguish over our circumstances. And we are prone to expect the worst thing to happen. 
This is not going to be good. In so many words, that's what we feel if, we, if yet we don't say it. This is not going to end well. Like Jacob, we expect to go to our graves in sorrow. We lose our song, and we turn from our singing to sighing, and laughter to lamentation, and peace turns into petulance. The damaging effects of this pessimistic spirit upon the heart and life are immense. You see, it's contagious. It's contagious. It easily spreads to those who are around us. They become infected with the pessimism that they see, that they hear. And we cast a dark shadow wherever we go. We lose this ability to, to encourage others and lift them out of their despondency. Our testimony to the lost around us is adversely affected because they see us bemoaning everything and that doesn't speak well of the Christian life. Worst of all, we lose the ability to truly praise the Lord from our hearts. From our hearts. What a blight the spirit of pessimism is upon the life of a child of God. But for every disease that plagues the believer, and I mean everyone, the Lord always has a remedy. In fact, there is only one remedy for any attack upon our spiritual life, and it is nothing more and nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. It's the cure. That brings me to the statement of Paul that stands in stark contrast to Jacob's statement, all these things or everything is against me. It's found in Romans 8 verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who or what can be against us? Everything's against me. By inspiration of the Spirit of God, Paul says, everything is for me. So are you going to believe Jacob? Or are you going to believe Paul? All things are for you. All things are are for you. From these two texts this morning, I want to speak for a little bit about overcoming pessimism. Or, if you like, how to go from the valley of gloom to the mountaintop of glory. How to get out of the valley of gloom, pessimism, and get to the mountaintop of glory. I have only two thoughts. Doesn't mean my message will be brief. I just have two thoughts to say what I need to say this morning. 
more I trust it'll be what the Spirit of God has to say. I want to look briefly at the realities of the Valley of Gloom from Jacob, and then I want to take Paul's words and look in the second and final place at the road to the mountain of glory. First, the realities of the Valley of Gloom. The realities of it. It's important that we look at hard realities when we are overwhelmed by a spirit of pessimism, gloom, doom about our circumstances, whatever they may be, whatever the occasion might be. It's good that we look at hard realities and not ignore them. The facts. And that is because when you are living in the valley of gloom, pessimism, you don't really, you're not really looking at reality. Point blank, you are not looking at reality when you're living in the valley of gloom. You're not dealing in reality. And so when you're not dealing in reality, the thing you need to do is to look at the real hard facts. Because you're in the valley of gloom, the bright rays of sunshine, which would enable you to see things more clearly, more accurately, they don't reach you. Your perceptions about your... Circumstances are skewed. You're not thinking straight. The response you give to your setbacks or your troubles is determined by how you feel, your emotional state at the time, or your own reasoning, your own logic about those circumstances, how, how you have leaned on your own understanding of the situation. Therefore, you need to take a, a look at hard realities when you're in the valley of gloom and pessimism. So first reality is this. Our gloom blinds us to the present blessings from the Lord and forgets about his past blessing. The gloom, the pessimist experience blinds us to the present blessings and it also causes us to forget about past blessings. And so we stay in the valley of gloom. Back in, in verse 2, Jacob had asked his sons to go down into Egypt to buy corn that we may live and not die. They were in some rough circumstances. Food was running out because of the famine that was in the land. And that, that famine was obviously very severe. If they did not get corn, they would starve to death. When we then read that Joseph had their sacks filled with corn and even gave them the money back to boot. It was free. So their families are not going to starve to death after all. They had relief. They have plenty of corn to eat, and this should have been taken as, I mean, if you're thinking correctly, ah, the Lord answered prayer. We are praying that God would provide the need. And God did that. All this corn is here available for us. But did they do that? Did Jacob do that? No. He only focused on the problem that they were having right there, then and there, and could not see the blessing that was right before them. They've just gotten back with food. All oh, these things are against me. He was a pessimist. God had answered prayer. 
didn't even take it on board. Pessimism has this awful ability to blind us to the present blessings of the Lord. They're right before us, right in front of our eyes, and we don't see them. But then also comes to easily blind us to the past blessings of the Lord. We forget about them. Jacob, Jacob, you know, for all of his problems, and he had them, his name means supplanter or twister, deceiver, Yaakov. And the Lord really blessed him. Remember Bethel? He's, he's, he's got to run away because he, he got his brother's birthright. Esau wants to kill him. His mom sends him off to her brother. He's there at Bethel, and what happens that night? God meets with him. He has a vision, the ladder, angels up and down the ladder. God's in this place. Bethel, the house of God, he calls it. It must have been a... I mean, I've never had that experience. Have you? It must have been some kind of experience to have the Lord actually give you this vision and God's telling you, speaking to you, promising to bless you. Jacob, I forgot all about that. And, and what about some years later, he's on Peniel. And Esau is coming towards him with 400 men. Now he's, uh, he's going to get me now. And he's on Peniel and he's wrestling with this angel of the Lord. He's wrestling with Christ. Christ wrestling with him. I will not let thee go. His hips out of joint. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Okay, you, you, you're getting what you asked for. Your name, your name is now Israel, prince with God, because you've prevailed with me. What a blessing that would have been. All these things are against me. Wait a minute, Jacob. Wait a minute. Have you forgotten about Peniel? Matter of fact, Jacob, you are still walking with a limp. That was the after effect of that encounter. Every time you walked with a limp, it was reminding you of that time when you prevailed with me. And here you're saying all these things are against me. You see how pessimism blinded his eyes to past blessings as well? He had forgotten, it seems, about... You remember, Dinah, the whole issue with the men of Shechem, and he wanted her so badly, and, well, bad news because uh, her brothers took it out on him. They slew all the men of Shechem, and they stank in their eyes, Jacob said. And they were scared to death. Jacob was. These men were going to come in and wipe them out. Listen, listen. In the midst of their fear... The scripture says, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. God put fear in them. Don't you touch them. You know, we, 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 we sing that song, do we not... Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I am come. We raise our Ebenezers, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And yet when those difficult times come, those adversities, those trials, we forget all about the Ebenezer. 
Pessimism has tremendous power to affect what you think about, how you think about it, how you look at things. A second reality, we have to face it, our gloom will often induce us to exaggerate the extent of the problem. Jacob said, Simeon is not. In the same breath, he said that Jacob is not. He believed Joseph to be dead. We know that. But his sons didn't say that Jacob was dead, just that Simeon was dead, just that he had been bound in front of their eyes. Jacob jumped to a wrong conclusion because his pessimism exaggerated just how bad the trouble was. He concluded that Benjamin would end up being executed just like he thought Simeon had been executed. He had no warrant to say either of those things, but he expected the worst. Because pessimism, pessimism induced him to exaggerate the extent of the problem. You see, when we are in the valley of gloom, we exaggerate our problems and think that our troubles are really worse than they are. We imagine that no one else has ever gone through what we're going through. They don't understand. But the fact of the matter is, there is no trial we will ever face, Paul says, that is not common to man. Someone's been there before you. In fact, many have been there before you. We imagine that our pain is greater than we can bear and so great that we would just rather die. I was there when my wife died. Pain that I've never had, never want to experience again. And yes, I can tell you, you would rather be dead than keep on feeling the pain of the separation. Though do you seriously believe that your affliction, your trouble, is worse than that of Job? What about Jeremiah? What about Jeremiah? They let him down into a pit, and he sunk in the mire. Can you imagine that? You're up to your waist, perhaps your chest, in mire. What your daily life would be like. Or what about Paul? As he lists his experiences in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. What about the martyrs of the church? And yet we tend to think, this is so, so bad. Pessimism exaggerates, exaggerates the extent of the trouble. Third reality, our gloomy spirit leads us to place blame on the ones who are actually nearest and dearest to us. (laughs) 
verse 36 of Genesis 42. Jacob says, And Reuben spake unto his, sorry, back up. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. You have done this. You boys have done this. Jacob is suspicious of his sons, and he places the blame upon them for his current spate of trouble. It was really foolish. I mean, they'd just done him a great favor. In fact, all of his family that, that are living there in the land, they brought them food back. He should be very grateful, very thankful, but he's, he's not treating the family right. Not treating those boys right. You want to know why? It's this gloomy pessimism that has gripped his heart, and he's hurting the very ones he loves with foolish and harsh words. Does it sound all too familiar? Trouble or even some tragedy can come into our home, and the tendency all too often will be to blame one another. It's your fault. It's your fault. No, it's yours. You caused this. If you hadn't done this, then, well, if you hadn't said that, then this wouldn't have happened. You, you, you've been overcome with a spirit of gloom, and you hurt the very ones you love. The blame game is played out. What has, what's been forgotten in, in the midst of all of the heartache, fear, and anxiety is that there is this God in heaven who preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions. It's just like it's, you've forgotten God is in the picture. You want to know what Jacob really meant when he said that everything is against me? He meant that these troubles were against his will. He didn't want it. He did not like this. He meant that they were against his present peace and comfort. You have ruined my day. Matter of fact, you've ruined my life. I'm going to go to the grave sorrowing. You've ruined my life. They were against his present happiness. It's against my happiness. And that's what's so important, you know, is our happiness. And that is why a spirit of gloom settles over us. And we conclude when we're in such a state that we will never, never know peace and comfort and happiness again. We think it's gone forever. It's all, listen to me, you listen carefully, it's all a lie. It's a lie. Why do you want to believe a lie?
the fourth and final reality before moving on to the second point. However plausible our pessimistic conclusions may seem to be, they're just not true. Jacob, you see, lived long enough to find out that he had been wrong from start to finish about everything being against him. Everything was working for him. He didn't see it, but it was. The wagons came. Imagine what it was like. The wagon, Joseph is alive! You know, it's like, you, you fall over. He's alive. It's when he heard the wagons. My boy's alive. He saw Joseph, and those last years of his life were golden years, wonderful years. And he thought everything was against him. Now, let's turn as we look about overcoming pessimism, how, how to get out of that valley onto the mountaintop of blessing, glory. The road to the mountain of glory, from Romans 8. Again, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things, if God be for us, who can be against us? Paul has been writing of the security of the God's people in spite of all, verse 18, the sufferings of this present time. Note that. In spite of all the sufferings of this present time, he is assuring them about the security that they have in Christ Jesus. After the struggles of the believer with that law of sin back in chapter 7, you could understand why he needed to do that. The sin that dwells in me, the things I would, I do not, things I would not do, those I do. There's this war going on, and who shall deliver me from this body of death? Christ will deliver you from this body of death. And goes on in chapter 8, reassuring them all the security that Christ and the gospel gives to his people. You're not going to be lost. You're not going to hell everything's going to work out. Don't worry. Don't get anxious. Don't be afraid. Don't get in the valley of gloom about it. What shall we say then to these things? These things, he asks. I, I take these things to not only be the gift of the, of the Spirit's intercession when we don't know what to pray for as we ought. That means uh, it's, it's not like it's a bad thing. Is that we don't know how we should be, what we should be asking God for in this situation. We're not clear as to what we should be asking God to do or asking Him for in this situation. He's promised there's going to be the Spirit's intercession. Yes, that is all part of it. And the truth of this, this overruling providence of God who makes all things work together for good. But I believe these things include the sufferings and the struggles He's been writing about. In light of our sufferings and the gift of God's Spirit and gracious sovereignty, how do we respond to it all? Here's how Paul If God be for us, he says, look, folks, if God's for us, who can be against us? The positive way of putting that is everything is for us. If nothing can be against us, really, at the end of the day, 
everything is going to be for us. Everything. Because this is the God who makes all things, everything, work together for good. Here's how we get from the valley of gloom to the mountain of glory. Listen to these well-known gospel truths. First off, God has not left us alone. That's first. He has not left us alone. I'll tell you the one thing the devil wants you to believe is you have been abandoned. You have been forsaken by God. You have been left alone. He's no longer there to help you. That is why there's so much reference, so much assurance in God's word that he will never leave us or forsake us ever, 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 ever. Keep saying it again and again because it's a chief card trick of the devil to try to get us to believe that lie. Paul says, does he not? Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, as is necessary for the situation. But the Spirit itself maketh intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit helpeth our infirmities. We have many weaknesses. One of them is to be able to, by faith, believe that when everything is against us, we still believe God is for me, and therefore it's okay. That's an infirmity, a weakness to do that. We're frail creatures in our best state. Our, our frailness, our weakness, leaves us with this inability to understand the will of God in prayer, what we should actually be praying for the Lord to do. And it, this weakness, uh, it sure makes it hard to fight against the flesh. That's why you cave to temptations, right? That's why you fell this week. That's why you sinned in thought and word and deed. In flesh. Moment of weakness. It's, it's, it's this weakness that we find it difficult to endure, to endure, to bear up under the heavy trials and pressures that come into our lives. We're weak. But Paul says we have not been left alone in our weakness. God has not left us alone in this world amid our weakness. He has given to us the Holy Spirit who helpeth our infirmities. That word help, you know, it only occurs one other time in Luke 10, this particular Greek word, where, where Martha bids Christ to tell her sister to come and help her. Only other place it occurs. It's a double compound word that means to take hold of something along the side of another. Uh, last summer, I was helping my, my son as a contractor. And I was visiting for a few weeks, and he took me out to his jobs. And I, I like woodworking, up part of my hobby. And we're, we're, we're building this outdoor open canopy light with eight by eight beams that have these metal girdings and 
this one spot we had to lift up, it was about uh, 10 foot wide. These four beams had to go up at one time, and I'm, I'm trying to try. And he comes alongside, and that's the word. I, I couldn't have done it alone. And he knew it. I'm not the spring rooster I used to be, you know. The Holy Ghost has been given. Part of what he does is to come right beside us and lay hold of us and the situation and bear us up. That's fact. No matter what the situation is that you're in, the Holy Ghost is there with you. And he will help you. He's been given to do that. He helpeth our infirmities. He helps our weaknesses. As I believe that and rest on that, the dark clouds of gloom begin to dissipate. Light begins to break through. I'm not alone in this. Secondly, God's purposes will never be frustrated. Second gospel truth. His purposes will never be frustrated. Verse 28, well known. I'm sure many of you may have it somewhere on your wall, on your fridge, somewhere. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. His purposes... All of them will never be frustrated. His purposes that he has planned and purposed for your life and every situation that you will ever find yourself in in your life, they will never be frustrated. You will not be able to frustrate God. Your circumstances will not be frustrating to God because he's God. Frustrating to you, maybe. But never to him. You see, the eyes are in the wrong place. That's why you find yourself in the valley of gloom, because you're frustrated because you can't fix the problem. You can't make it go away. But to someone who can fix the problem, or at least give you all the grace that you need to bear up under it, his purposes will never be frustrated. We know that he makes all things work together for good. Why? Because they're his elect. That's what the passage is saying. For, because whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. The word means... It's not just, it's not simply prior knowledge. It's a, it's a Hebrew expression. He foreloved. He loved before. That's the idea in the word. So those verses indicate that God, if he's going to make all things, every little detail work together for your good, that means he has to reign over everything. Those people in your lives, those circumstances, those storms, 
those things that are taken away from you, the death of a child, the death of a spouse, the death of a, a, a mother or a father, whatever the case might be, God has ordered all the details. He's reigning over them, every one. He's working them for your good. The Lord is bringing to pass His perfect will. Now, I will repeat what the folk that were in the Bible class this morning heard, heard. We believe that God can only do that which is the wisest thing to be done, right? He couldn't do anything unwise. It has to be perfectly wise. God is the one who only does for his people what is the most loving thing that could be done. Right? Most loving. Couldn't, you couldn't expect anything else from God. He does only what is the best thing that could be done. It has to be the best. So you see the gospel truth that comes into play now is this God is our God forever and ever. And that means everything that he has planned for our lives is the best thing. It is the wisest thing. It is the most loving thing that he could do. How does that make you look at your troubles? The things that are against your happiness, as they were against Jacob's happiness, that are against your peace and comfort, that were against his comfort, that are against your will, as opposed to his will. You may not like it, and God never asked you to like it. But he does say, I want you to trust me, that I am who I say that I am. And I will do exactly what I said I would do in my word. Now, I'll tell you one thing, folks, that is certainly a step in getting out of the valley of gloom. Where do you find yourself today? The valley of gloom? Are you in that place of rejoicing in spite of the circumstances? I find this old apostle sitting in a, a prison and saying to God's people, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. We can, because this God is our God, and his purposes will never be frustrated. We might get frustrated, but not God. Can I tell you something? God... You might be frustrated with people and with your circumstances and with yourself, but God is not frustrated with any of it. You can't frustrate God. He doesn't get impatient. He knows what he's done, what he's planned. He knows how he's going to do it. And it's all going according to plan. You believe that? There's no, there's no happenstance in life. There are, there are wrecks, but accidents, if I can play with the words, it's planned. Thirdly, another step out. 
God is for us. Therefore, we will not be defeated. Verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? The point is, he's asking, who can really be against us and win? Who can be against us and prevail? Oh, they're against us. There were things against, Jacob's sin was against him. His unbelief was against him. The pagans in the land were against him. Oh, that's true. But they could not prevail. There are many things against us. The flesh is against us. The world's against us. Satan is against us. But God is not against me. In fact, is he's very much for me. He's very much for you. I know, because I've been there, how you think and you feel at times that God, especially when you've got a difficult situation, you think that God is against you, and you could probably give him a thousand and one reasons why he should be against you. You ever been there? You could, you could cite off, reel off a thousand reasons why God should be against you. But he'll never be against you. He chose you from the world's foundation to be his. One of his elect, his chosen. And you'll always be that. And he will never, ever be against you. God the Father is for you. God the Son is for you. God the Holy Ghost is for you. Come on, come on. These are, these are gospel truths. As my Father, he will not abandon me. As my Father, He will always pity me. He will always remember that, that we are dust. Our frames are so weak and frail. He'll always remember that. He'll always deal with us as a father to His children. Christ is for us. The blood was shed for us. How, how could we ever think that He is actually against us? You say, my sin, my sin, my sin. I don't see how he could not be against me. But then I remember my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Moreover, God will give us all that we will ever need. Verse 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he gave us Christ... Why in the world do we ever dream for a moment that he will not give us what we need? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The moment we stop believing that, we sink into the valley of gloom. The moment you begin to believe it, Whatever my need happens to be, whether it's spiritual, emotional, financial, temporal, whatever it is, somehow God will meet the need. Somehow he'll do it. I don't know how, but it will happen. Why then should I be discouraged? 
Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. This is the gospel, folks. Do you believe it? God will defend us against all accusations. Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. That word brings us into a courtroom. The devil's accusations come against us, points out all that's wrong with us. And Paul raises that question, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who? It is God that justifieth. Yea, rather, Christ that died, risen again. You know, it doesn't matter. The devil will bring his charges. And you know what? When he comes, you can say, well, Satan, you don't know the half. As all you've said about me, there's a lot more that you don't know about me, but I know them. But I say this. I have a defender. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's at my Father's right hand, and he will defend me against all of your accusations. What though the accuser roar of ills that I have done, I know them all in thousands more. Jehovah findeth none. Or, or as another hymn writer said, though the restless foe accuses, sins recounting like a flood, every charge our God refuses, Christ has answered with his blood. There you are. Let him roar away. God has said, you are righteous. And it will never be taken from you. I view you as righteous as my son. Because it's his righteousness that's been put to your account. I can rejoice in that. I can get happy about that. There is never going to come a time as he ends the epistle. I, I, I wish I had another hour. I know you probably don't, but there is so much here. He says at the end, God will never stop loving you. You know, that's hard for us to get our heads around and maybe even more our hearts. I am persuaded. He lists all these things. At the end, he says, it says no creature. It means no created thing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We have a hard time believing that because we know what it is to stop loving someone. Or to be on the end of it when someone has stopped loving us. They've stopped caring for us. They've stopped looking out after our welfare because that's what love does. It looks after the benefit of the person you love. Always looking to do them good. To help them. God says, I will never stop doing you good. I will never stop looking out for your welfare. 
I will love you. I have loved you from the foundation. Before, from eternity, I have loved you, and I'm never going to stop loving you. Caring for your every need, watching your every step, knowing everything you will ever face, and I will love you through it all. My love is unending. Well, now, I believe those gospel truths, I'm already out of the valley of gloom. Valley of, I got troubles. Yeah, I've got troubles. But our God is bigger than all the troubles put together. We have Christ. We have his righteousness. We have his promises. We have his spirit. We have his word. So if you're sitting there this morning in that valley, or you're in a path that's going to take you to that valley, just stop where you are and go back to these basic gospel truths. May God write his word on our hearts for his namesake. We bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, it has been good for us to think again upon the old, old story. Come and strengthen thy people, we pray. I know not where they may be in their own walk with thee, but thou dost know. And, O oh God, we pray that thou wilt take this word appointed for this Sabbath morning and make it a, a, a Bethel to thy people place where they experience thy presence and go out of thy house rejoicing in the Lord and in the power of his might. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen and amen.